If you haven't already done so, please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. Matthew 26. As Anton said a moment ago, tonight we come to a special time in the Christian calendar. The time in Holy Week when we remember the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples before he was betrayed, arrested, and crucified. And it's at this meal, this meal, that we're going to remember tonight that Jesus institutes the second sacrament of the church also referred to as communion. We get that, that name, communion, from 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul says this, this bread that we take, this, 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 this cup that we receive, is it not a communion, a participation with Jesus? Also referred to as the Eucharist, or a time of thanksgiving to God. So it's an important time in the Christian calendar, but more than a special time in the Christian calendar, as Anton also said, it's not commanded in Scripture that we meet on this night and this day in April every year. More than that, it's an important time in the Christian Scriptures. It's a significant time in the Christian Scriptures where it seems like the narrative of the Gospels slows down and zooms in on the last final moments of Jesus' ministry. No longer are we moving day by day immediately, as Mark would say, through the busy ministry of Jesus healing and teaching and casting out demons and proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. But rather, it's slowing down and we're zooming in to the final hours when Jesus spends with his disciples, this final meal. And although we all know how the narrative goes, the betrayal of Judas Iscariot, the Garden of Gethsemane, the arrest in the night, the kangaroo court, before Caiaphas the high priest, and the judgment by Pontius Pilate, and then the scourging and crucifixion of Jesus. Although we know that, although we're familiar with that, it's difficult not to be struck by the gravity and weight of all this as we take a moment to ponder this moment. And of course, we know that it doesn't end with the crucifixion. We also know that part of the narrative. We know that there's a glorious ending on the first day of week on Sunday, but as we read about these final moments, particularly his final supper with his disciples, we're made to realize an important truth, an important truth that I want us to come away remembering tonight, and that is the simple truth that we say all the time, Jesus died for me. My king died for me. He gave himself for me. That's the simple truth I want us to leave here remembering. Jesus died for my sin. Not just claiming that as an historical fact, yes, the man Jesus of Nazareth died under the hands of Pontius Pilate. Yes, that happened. But making that truth our own, and as Christians, letting that sink down. My Savior Jesus died for my sin. That's something we, we often say, and rightly so, it's a rich truth. But I hope that we're able to dig a little bit deeper into that truth tonight. So that when we say Jesus died for me, we can say it with more emphasis, not just as a cliche. So in order to do that, I want us to consider two texts of Scripture tonight. Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 29, a very familiar passage, read very often as we partake of communion. 
But we're also going to use that text as a springboard into an Old Testament text, Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 to 6. So we're going to be dealing with those two texts. Matthew 26 reminds us that the Lord's Supper is a new Passover meal where we see Jesus put forward as a sacrificial lamb on behalf of his people. And then in Isaiah 53, that reminds us that the suffering and death of Jesus was because of our sin. And once we've considered those two texts, when they're going to ask an important question, um, how should we respond to this truth that Jesus died for me? And how does it influence the way that we participate in this meal? So let's read Matthew 26, verses 26 to 29 once more so the text is fresh in our minds. And I think I heard a few of you paging. You might want to keep your pinky in Isaiah 53 if you're not there already. Matthew 26, verse 26. Now, as they were eating, what were they eating? They were eating the Passover meal. We get that from the context in verse 17. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Just that text. And specifically, we're going to be honing in on verse 28. But before we do that, what is the context in which Jesus says this? It's a familiar passage, but let's just remind ourselves and bring ourselves up to speed. What's going on here? Where are we in the narrative? Well, the context, put simply, is Passover. As I alluded to a moment ago, we get that from the context in verse 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? So that's the meal that they're eating. Passover was a meal that Israel ate in remembrance of the exodus from Egypt. It's that great Old Testament event that defined Israel's identity. When God spared Israel, but struck down the firstborn of the Egyptians, all who weren't covered by the blood of the lamb. So that the lamb was then roasted and eaten along with the unleavened breads. That's the meal that Jesus and his disciples are now eating. And Jesus and his disciples, they know full well what the historical meaning of this meal is. They know as good Jews who have been practicing this for centuries some one and a half thousand years they've been practicing this. They know the meaning of this. At least they know the old meaning of this. The old meaning was that, uh, that Jews were familiar with is that the lamb that was slain, the lamb that they were eating in this meal, that was given on behalf of the firstborn. And that's an all-important phrase for our consideration tonight. That lamb was given on behalf of the firstborn. In the Exodus event, the death of the lamb represented what would have happened to the firstborn if the lamb had not been slain. That's what it means to be a substitute, to bear something on someone else's behalf. The lamb was a substitute for the firstborn. So that's what the Passover meal reminded them of. And it reminded them that if they took the blood of that lamb and they, they put it on their lintel and their doorposts. Then when God sent the destroyer in the night as part of the 10th plague upon Egypt, God would see that blood and would pass over that house. That's where we get the name 
pass over because God passed over and did not bring death and destruction to that household. So that's the old meaning of the Passover meal. That's what, what Jesus and his disciples already assume about this meal. And for all we know, Jesus' disciples just assume that this is just another Passover. It's just another special moment in our time with Jesus to enjoy this traditional meal. But Jesus now changes the meaning of this meal. He infuses it with different meaning. He doesn't merely use it as an illustration. He takes this meal and gives it a new reference point, a new meaning. Jesus says that he is that lamb, and he is going to be given on behalf of his people, very much like the lamb in the Old Testament. And the death of Jesus represents what would have happened to us. So the Passover meal has been given a completely new reference point. Rather than referring to the exodus from Egypt and involving the sacrifice of a lamb, it now refers to the redemption of God's new people and involves the sacrifice of Jesus. So like I said, Jesus isn't merely hijacking this Jewish meal as though this Jewish meal will continue existing into the future. He is putting a complete change there. And he's saying this meal now refers to me. It refers to the new exodus, the new deliverance of God's new people under his new covenant. And the implication of this, Jesus putting himself forward as the lamb, is huge. We know what happened to all the firstborn throughout Egypt who weren't in a home covered by the blood of the lamb. They were struck down and killed. But of course, we're not slaves in Egypt. God isn't about to send the destroyer to strike down the firstborn in every home. So what is Jesus as our substitute taking away from us? What is he our substitute for? What is he saving us from? Well, in order to answer that question, we've got to take our cue from verse 28. Verse 28 says, For this is my blood of the covenant. And by the way, that small phrase over there is a rewording of Exodus chapter 24, verse 8 where they're at Mount Sinai, the law has been given to Israel, the law is read to Israel, and the Israelites say, everything that's been read, we will do. And Moses takes the blood, Aaron takes the blood of the bull and sprinkles it over the people and says, this is the blood of the covenant. So already here, Jesus is doing something radically different. But he says, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, when Jesus says that, it's poured out for many, on behalf of many, for the sake of many, for the forgiveness of sins, he is alluding to an Old Testament passage, Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6, a well-known passage, the passage of the suffering servant of Isaiah. So let's turn there, if you haven't already done so, Isaiah 53, as we consider the substitution of the servant. And let's read these verses in Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. Isaiah the prophet declares, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. 
who have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the well-known passage of the suffering servant. And the person who is spoken of here is, as I said, the suffering servant of Isaiah. The suffering servant is the Messiah who will come for his people, who will come for Israel and redeem them, deliver them from bondage and captivity, like God had done under Moses in the Exodus. They're looking forward to this suffering servant. But what's he going to save them from? He's going to save them. He's going to save us from our sin. And how is he going to do that? How is he going to save us? Is he going to save us by defeating our enemies all around? By updating our technology and ushering in a golden economic age? By bringing in health, wealth, and prosperity? He's going to save us by taking upon himself the suffering and punishment, even the wrath due for our sin. That's how he's going to save us. That's what the Bible says. See the emphasis in the text on the servant taking something from us. If you look at verse 4, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And verse 5, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And at the end of verse 6 is a sort of climax. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So you see, our biggest problem isn't out there in the world. Our biggest problem isn't beyond these four walls. Our biggest problem isn't the person sitting next to us. Our biggest problem isn't our parents or our kids or our teacher or our boss. Our biggest problem is our broken relationship with God. That's our biggest problem. Our problem is our broken and fallen state before the creator, king, and judge of the universe. Our relationship is broken because we're not these helpless creatures who have merely fallen under hard times. We are rebellious sinners who love to transgress God's law and indulge in all kinds of morality. That's what the Bible says about us. Isaiah begins his book with these sobering words to God's covenant people. Listen to what he says of God's people. In chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, he says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, oh, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. That's how Isaiah opens up his prophecy. That's the context into which the suffering servant comes. He's not coming to bring this, this freedom from something outside of ourselves. He's coming to bring us freedom from ourselves as we stand under judgment before God. So do you see the problem now? Our problem is our great sinfulness and the great punishment that that sin deserves before the God who is the creator, before the God who is our father, as described in Isaiah 1. And once we understand what our greatest problem is, then we'll understand more clearly what Jesus saves us from then we'll understand more clearly what we mean when we say Jesus died for me. He saved me from my sin by having his father lay on him the iniquity of us all. 
Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus, just, just to clarify, that doesn't mean that Jesus literally became a sinner in the same way that you and I are sinners. It means that the punishment that was due to our sin, he bore. It's that punishment and that wrath that he bore as though he were us, put in our place. Verse 5 of Isaiah makes this abundantly clear. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. That's how Jesus is dealing with our sin. He's bearing the punishment for our sin. So just as the Passover lamb had to be slain so that the firstborn wouldn't be slain, so Jesus had to bear our punishment so that we wouldn't bear the punishment. Do you see the parallel there? Do you see how at, at this table we have these images of the Passover lamb and the lamb on the day of atonement, and we've got the suffering servant brought together. In fact, we have all these images coming together to teach us this truth. So coming back to Matthew 26, verse 28, when Jesus says that this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, Hopefully now we can say with better understanding, he died for my sins. Jesus died for my sin. He died instead of me. Now, what should be our response to this truth? This is, of course, the gospel, what we're describing here. When we come to Easter weekend, we're not just celebrating something that Christians do. We're not just enjoying a long weekend. We're learning about the gospel, and, and we should ask ourselves, what should be our response to this gospel, and how should it influence the way that we approach the table? Now, an obvious response would be to say that because Jesus gave his life for me, I should give my life to him. That's a natural response, and you see that all the way throughout the Bible. Another response would be to say that if Jesus died for my sin, then I should put my sin to death. I should die to my sin in order that I may truly live. So these are common implications or responses to this truth. But I want us to think about how this truth of Jesus' substitutionary death changes the way we interact with the Lord's Supper in particular. That's after all what we're here to remember. How should we approach the table? How should we respond? Now, I believe there's actually a two-sided response to this. There are two sides of the coin as we respond to the gospel. On the one hand, because Jesus died for my sin, I should approach the Lord's Supper with reverent contrition and confession. Because he died for my sin, I should approach the table with contrition and confession. That contrition, to be contrite, means to have remorse over our sin, even sorrow over our sin. It means seeing our sin as sin, confessing our sin means being willing to articulate before our loving Father what it is that we have done, which is evil in his sight. We see this attitude expressed all over the Bible, but in a well-known psalm, Psalm 51, David, after committing his great sin of adultery with Bathsheba, he claims God's forgiveness in verses 1 and 2. He says, have mercy on me according to your, your, thank, your, your covenant love, your steadfast love. But then he says in verses 3 and 4, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you see, even as David just said, have mercy on me, forgive me, 
He brings us heart of contrition and confession. We must come to God with a realization that this sin that Jesus is bearing is my sin. The sin that Jesus is bearing is my sin. This wasn't my parents' fault. Nobody made me do it. This isn't the problem with our country and the system and our economy. These are my transgressions, and they are evil in God's sight. So this is what the Bible teaches about how we should respond to God's willingness to forgive, to God's willingness to pardon our iniquities. We should come with heads bowed under the weight of our sin. But then on the other side of the coin, the flip side, the other side of our response to the gospel is with rejoicing. This is another one of those paradoxes in the Christian life where we live ever with our sin before us, with the knowledge of that sin before us, but simultaneously with the joy that that sin has been forgiven. Because Jesus died for my sin. Because he died for my sin, I should leave the table rejoicing with full confidence that I have a clear conscience sprinkled clean and I can enter boldly approaching the throne of grace because of the blood of Jesus. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5 verses 10 to 11. He says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So he's already thinking about the resurrection there. But then in verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see how Paul draws out that implication of the gospel. We rejoice because of what God has done for us in Jesus. We rejoice through our Lord Jesus because through our Lord Jesus, we have been forgiven of all our sins. To be a Christian and to partake of this meal means to hold these two truths together, never overemphasizing one to the exclusion of the other, never saying that our sin was a light thing that ought to be played with, Never saying that, but also never saying that our sin is too great for God to forgive. That would be spurning the table. That would be spurning the cross. So we should never let that sense of guilt override the joy of knowing that God forgives me. So we hold those two in tension. So let's hold these two truths together now when we approach the table, as we remember that Jesus poured out his blood for many, for the forgiveness of sins, so that we can say, Jesus died for me. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we worship you and adore you. You are the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. You are the great conqueror who conquered by your blood. We thank you for these texts tonight which, which shout the wisdom of God and the love of God for welcoming us into your family through the blood. As we come to the table now, help us to respond appropriately. Help us to have this, this two-sided response. Give us an understanding of the weight of our sin. Help us to put words to our sin and to confess them before you. But help us to do that with the expectation of rejoicing, the expectation of coming away 
with our hearts full of your love because of the love that you've given us through your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.